Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 216. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. greatest presidents in the history of our great nation was Ronald Reagan. What would have been his 112th birthday was February 6th. I didn't remember that until last week's episode had already been recorded, so I decided that this week's episode should be dedicated to the great communicator. You might want to sit down for this one. I'm going to stop asking you for gifts to support this show and begin asking you to help me get more listeners to the Cantankerous Catholic. It won't cost you anything except a few minutes of your time. The more reviews the Cantankerous Catholic gets, the more often it's displayed by the podcast aggregators when people are looking for new podcasts. Occasionally, this might cause the Cantankerous Catholic to get attention from podcast magazines the industry's trade magazine. So click on the link in my show notes that says Rank and Review the Cantankerous Catholics so more Catholics can join us. Then write a short review. Doesn't cost you anything and it doesn't make me anything. It just gets more listeners for the Cantankerous Catholic and makes the USCCB live it. That's a good thing. Whereas over 60% of six-pack warriors are between the ages of 18 and 34, most of you weren't even born when Reagan was in office, and I've noticed over the years that the American history textbooks you had in school usually vilified him. Therefore, I suspect that most of you don't really know Ronald Reagan. Well, we're going to change that in this episode. As much as I love Donald Trump's political agenda, I don't miss him at all. 
Thanks to both him and the communist demonic Dems, this nation has become the most divided it's been since the Civil War. However, I do miss Reagan immensely. He united this nation as no one else has since the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. He was so unifying, in fact, that when he ran against Jimmy Carter in 1980, he swept the nation, losing only six states and the District of Columbia. And when he ran against Walter Mondale in 1984, he won all the states except Minnesota and D.C. Reagan was known as Dutch, the great communicator, and the gripper, a reference to a movie he starred in titled Newt Rockne, All-American. And he really was a great communicator. He was also known for his great sense of humor. He entered the White House at a time when we were threatened by the Cold War, our military had been disseminated, we faced double-digit inflation, national morale was at an all-time low on the heels of the Vietnam War, and the American people were in a malaise. He stopped inflation, rebuilt the military, brought down communism and Russia to end the Cold War, and restored morale and pride in America, thus uniting the American people. All of this was while he was the oldest president in history, until pretender Biden. I'm going to do something very different in this episode from the usual format. This entire episode will be Reagan himself in his own words. While I intend to focus on Reagan's sense of humor, I'm also going to give you the best of his debates with his opponents in 1980 and 1984, and the most famous lines from the most famous speech he ever gave. But first I want to play for you a cut from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1975, which allows you to see what America was in store for during the 1980 campaign. talking with uh, former Governor Reagan, and uh, during the break we were discussing. When I mentioned uh, that I thought most people uh, were not apathetic, I think they're confused, basically, because you hear intelligent people from uh, both political parties or in the middle, conservatives and liberals, and they all seem to have different answers as to what is going wrong in the country. Some people say, well, let's let the government spend billions of dollars, and then other people say, no, no more federal spending. Uh, let's give the tax rebates. And the other intelligent people say, no tax rebates. We've got to do this and do that. So everybody is confused. Uh, how, how, how do you see the thing? What, how are we going to get out of this? Well, uh, Johnny, I think that one of the things is that people keep looking to government for the answer, and government's the problem. You, a moment ago, you, you asked, you know, about people and feeling not only confused, but right. low and, and down in America. First of all, the American people, if they would just take a little inventory and look around, you triple our troubles, and we're better off than any other people on Earth. And we've asked so much of government, and we've gotten in the habit over the last 40 years of thinking that government has the answers. There's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves. And if government would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks, we'd never miss them. Now, the... If, if the people Anybody want to be you sure. had in mind particularly? Huh? <laughs> no, I said this while I was in government. <laughs> okay. Our biggest problem is that we have built a permanent structure of government, federal, state, and local, the permanent employees, and they've come to the place that they actually determine policy in this country more than does the Congress of the United States. Mm -hmm. There are 14 and a half million public employees in the United States. That's quite a voting block. And... The bureaus and agencies, not in Washington, I heard you talking earlier about uh, some of the research programs. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a senator the other day, and he took up some pages of the congressional record. He was doing the same thing you were, listing all these crazy research programs and how much they were costing, and wound up his speech by introducing his own. He wants a study and a research of transcendental meditation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a state senator in Michigan and he just found out the other day they got a $93,000 study on whether chitlins are bad for you. And, and he said that as a fourth generation chitlin eater, he figured that he could tell you how for 93 cents you could find out the answer to that. No, we laugh at those things, yeah. but they do happen, I guess. Oh, listen, there, you, you had some beauties and there's some others. 
What would you say if I told you about one, a study in which this was called the, um, the uh, demography of happiness? And in this study, the government found out that uh, young people are happier than old people. <laughs> and uh, they found out that people that earn more are happier than people that earn less. And they found out that well people are happier than six people. That's good. Well, that's now, this was $249,000 to find out it's better to be rich, young, and healthy than old, poor, and sick. <laughs> So what do you say now that it's that the government but may be the problem? So, uh, so what do people do? They well, have to look to somebody, and you say if they look for themselves, that's uh, it may be good advice. But how about somebody home. who's on a you know a social security pension or a pension that's trying to live on one hundred and fifty dollars a month? You know they have to look to somebody, I guess. Yeah. And they're saying, hey, we can't make it. We can't afford to go to a doctor. Uh, well, 62% of the people can't stay home in an election and cure things, as we did in the last election. I just read this week, on, I heard this week on the radio, they dropped 300,000 voters from the Los Angeles rule because yeah. they didn't take the time to go to the polls in the last election. Yeah. 300,000 people. That's the lowest percentage in history. Only 38% of the people voted in the national election. And this means that people aren't paying any attention to what... Well, here, a poll was taken recently that found out that only 46% of the people in the poll could name their United States congressman. But what was worse, 86% of those who could name him couldn't tell you a single thing that he represented or stood for. They just knew that he represented the yeah, state. But he was a congressman, but what's he doing while he's up there? And the same is true at the, at the local levels of government and, and all the rest. But, um, so you're saying people really have to take an active interest, and you have to have uh, citizen action right. groups locally and... Uh, and let them know. Concerned See, special interest groups... Now, the special interest groups aren't, as everyone thought, big, powerful business interests or something that are going to persuade government to do things. As a matter of fact, I don't know anyone with less influence today in government than business. They're just a convenient whipping boy. But it's the groups that have got a particular axe to grind. You can't have a power plant because it might interfere with the, the seagulls. Now, I think I'm an environmentalist. And I do not agree with those people way over on the edge who pave the whole country over in the name of progress. But also, I don't like those on the other extreme that won't let you build a house unless it looks like a bird's nest. Someplace in the middle, we've got to allow people or ecology, too. Right. Well, this kind of group, and they want their particular program. Hundreds of dollars have been added to the cost of an automobile putting gadgets on it to, to clear up the air. We're the only country in the world that's set out to do it that way. The automobile industry, over and over again, told government if they give them more time, the right. answer lay in making the motor more efficient and making it burn the fuel better. And um, when they were given the limited time, there was only one thing they could turn to. That was the add-ons that you had to go. And uh, the verdict is really kind of still out on, on those, and whether they're, they're going to add more sulfuric good. acid yeah. to, the, to the air or not. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Now, you've been asked this question. I'm sure you knew that I was, would, might possibly bring it up tonight. Uh, there's an election coming up. You, uh, you're out of politics now, but you, you're speaking, and as I say, you're going around the country. Um, do you envision a possibility, uh, say, in 76, if the convention, say, was deadlocked? I'm giving you all the theories and so forth, and the conservatives took over, possibly, and got control of the, uh, of the electoral process, and they couldn't quite make a decision, and they came to you and said, uh, Governor Reagan... Uh, we can't decide between Mr. Ford and Mr. Rockefeller. We're divided. Um, would, you like to, uh, would you like to go to the White House? Uh, you remember that answer I gave you about the CIA? Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy it. No, I, I can understand the CIA now, no. but... Uh, no, I... I just, thought that was delicately phrased. I, yes. <laughs> verbose but delicate. Yeah, verbose but delicate. <laughs> I... Uh, no, I think it's an unanswerable question. I don't think anyone in view of the things that have gone on in the last few years knows what's going to happen in the, in the next two years mm -hmm. down the road. I think that everyone should hope and pray that people are there will do the job so well that there won't be any question mm -hmm. about it. Because if they do, then everything's all right with the rest of us. Uh, you think they're doing their job well? Well, I agree with some things and disagree with others. When they, when, they give me a, when they give me a choice between a $53 billion deficit in the budget and an $80 billion deficit, when budget deficits are what's causing inflation, I don't see that there's any room to be on either side of that argument. Yeah, I think the answer to 
curing inflation is a balanced budget. Now, how do you do that? I mean, well, it's how do you balance the budget? Well, balancing the budget is like protecting your You don't your spend more than you take in, right? Yeah, it's like protecting your virtue. You have to learn to say no. <laughs> There's got to be another way. <laughs> what, what's the second option? <laughs> well, no, there's some ways that this could be brought about. First of all, that limitation. Here, here's another one. Why shouldn't we have, in addition to a simplified income tax, why shouldn't we also have a law that says that any time a legislator or a congressman introduces a spending program, he has to introduce with it a tax program to pay for it? Then let the people find out. There was a woman that, uh, from a financial firm that was back at the President's Economic Council, and her words weren't quoted. Everybody else's words got in the paper, all the Hellers and the Galbraths and all the so-called economists. And I, had a, I have a degree in economics, so I can say this. I think an economist is someone who has a Phi Beta Kappa key on one end of his watch chain and no watch on the other. Uh, <laughs> This woman said that you go to the polls and you ask the people, do they want some social service, some program the government can give? And the people in the polls are apt to read and say, hey, that sounds good, yeah. Mm -hmm. But she says that isn't exactly accurate. She says, put a $100 bill in each person's hand and then show them the program and say, now, isn't that a nice program? Do you want it? Give me the $100. And she says, see what the poll says then and how many people hang on to the $100 instead of the program. In other words, if it's rather hidden and someone doesn't know exactly yeah. where it's going to come they from. They all start, all the government programs start a dollar down and we'll catch you later. And, uh, and they, they multiply all of those yeah. things that you were... The Office of Management and Budget in Washington that's responsible for the budget, putting, mm -hmm. up, putting the budget together, cannot even tell you how many boards, commissions, agencies, bureaus, and departments there are in the federal government. Yeah. But all of them can pass regulations. And those regulations have the force of law. And the difference is, when you break the law, you're innocent until proven guilty. When you break a regulation, the fellow that charges you with breaking the regulation, you're guilty. Right. And if you want to take him to court and prove you're innocent, that's up to you. Right. And uh, all of these are things that, that um, yes, we can trim the budget. There's nope. enough fat in the federal government that if you rendered it, you could wash the world. You, uh, <laughs> now you took... They took a poll of the American people the past week, and I think 78 percent or something, around 75 percent, were opposed to more military aid to uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and Southeast Asia in general. And yet the administration uh, was trying to tell the American people that a couple hundred million or 222 million dollars would make some kind of difference, or that the government might make it. And uh, how, how do you feel? Do you think that that is a, a lost cause in a way? I think people can see humanitarian. Uh, you know, for children, hospitals, et cetera, medical supplies and food. But it seems that the public has just almost had it up with military involvement where we feel we are not directly threatened. Well, we, we are uh, fed up. We're war-weary after a long and badly fought war. On the other hand, and this is one where I'll probably lose a lot of people because it isn't popular or political to say this uh, today. Uh, when we withdrew our troops, we made a ceasefire, a peace agreement. And... It was based on uh, su supporting the non-communist forces in Indochina on a basis of one-for-one one replacement. Every bullet they expended a bullet to replace it. If the communists violated the ceasefire, mm -hmm. the communists have violated the ceasefire 72,000 times since it was instituted and we brought our men home. And I think for the United States to break its word, we're in that agreement. We pledged something, and the Congress is now saying that the United States reserves the right to just break its word and not... What other allies ever going to trust us? And I... Uh, there's no question that backed by Red China and the Soviet Union, the communist forces in Vietnam and Cambodia are on their way to take those over. They do, of course, Laos just automatically falls. Mm -hmm. Then they're on the edge of Indonesia, 140 million people, which comes within 14 miles at its nearest point of the Philippines. The domino theory is... Is that existence. still a viable theory, do you think? And, uh, yes, it is. And I, I could see the United States one day being very, very lonely. Now, it's a very funny thing that the same forces that want to cut our defense spending 
are the same ones that want to increase all these social services and this social tinkering and experimenting that hasn't worked. And every time it doesn't work, they just impose a more expensive <coughs> program on top of it. I think the American people, if they really look at all the facts, uh, yes, we want fiscal responsibility. But I think we also want a country that is strong enough at all times that we can say to any adventurous guys over there on the other side of the water, you better look twice, brother, mm. uh, before you start getting rough. That we can take care of ourselves. As you said, as you said, you, even before you made the statement, that would probably get mixed for your uh, yeah. reaction. When and I can understand that. People are, and it's hard to understand how maybe your interest is involved 10,000 miles away. Uh, but Russia seems concerned that their interests mm -hmm. extend all the way to Cuba and to. South America, to Chile, and to other countries of that kind. And they're the ones that have said they're going to impose their way of life on the rest of the world. We mm. haven't said we want to do it to the rest of the world, our way. Let me ask you one more question uh, before you go. Let us assume that there's a third party, that, yeah. that neither party seems to go. Yeah. Uh, you like this approach already, huh? <laughs> uh, and they're thrown into disarray, as they say. And a third party is formed. Do you think that'll ever happen in this country, where a third party will be a, a major type of uh, uh, well, alternate I, to uh, what we have? Well, I'd still prefer to see uh, a revitalization of the two major parties we have, uh, because the two-party system has served us very well. Third parties have a notorious way of not being successful. Now, the Republican Party, some people say, well, that was a third party 100 years ago when it started. It actually wasn't. It was a second party. The Whig Party had shrunk and shrunk, and then the remainder of the Whig Party said to two other groups that had formed parties, hey, want to get together with us? They changed their name and called themselves the other party. And so it was, in effect, the Whigs just disappeared. It was a new second party. Right. Uh, maybe this is time. Maybe it's time for uh, realignment between people who might be finding themselves in the wrong parties. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there are some people still voting I was a Democrat most of my life. I became a Republican only not too many years ago. And uh, I had the pleasure of telling some of those people that are saying the Republican Party ought to broaden its base the other day that uh, when I switched parties, I didn't do it because the two parties were alike. I did it because they were different. And um, I think that the two parties ought to stand up as to what they represent, what they stand for. A third party, I, they have a way of electing the wrong people they, because they simply divide themselves from the other forces that feel the same way, and then the other fella sneaks in. And um, I'd, uh, it, it could happen that, the, that neither party would, would rec represent what the people want, and right. finally the people would take some action and do something about it. But I'd, I'd rather devote our effort to seeing if we can't find out what the present two yeah. parties stand for and which one we want. But to you don't see yourself, or do you see yourself as maybe as a part of that actively, active politically again? Uh, I certainly well, don't give up, do I? Uh, yeah, you, you, uh, you sure, sure don't. I wish I could think of a good get-off line. I have Lawrence Pivak's old question, yeah. you know, for that. Nancy, Nancy, you know, said to, to say hello tonight. She thought it was great that we we're both in town at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you too, huh? I get that. Thanks for being with us tonight, really. John, it's a pleasure to pleasure. see you again. This was just a taste of the man who'd become our 40th president. Before moving on to Reagan's humor, I'm going to play a one-minute clip of his most famous speech ever, one that changed history. Reagan was in Berlin when it was still a divided city, one half belonging to the free Berliners and the other half belonging to the communist Russians under the tyranny of Mikhail Gorbachev. It was Reagan's intent throughout his presidency to end Eastern European communism, and this part of his speech was opposed by all of the people working for Reagan. They advised him not to do it, but the brave man said it anyway. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate.
Mr. Gorbachev. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Believe it or not, that speech marked the beginning of the end of the Soviet Empire while under President George H.W. Bush. Interestingly, after Soviet Russia fell, the media asked Bush what he attributed to their downfall. He said it was all because of Reagan. When Reagan was asked the same question, he gave the credit to St. Pope John Paul II. And when John Paul was asked about it, he gave the credit to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now let's focus on Reagan's sense of humor. What I've done is to make a compilation of excerpts from his speeches over the years. I think you'll like this. I know I do. On our way here in Air Force One, I was looking down over the, your countryside out here because most of the way from Oklahoma, I was looking down at clouds. And... Uh, I could say that it reminded me of a story, but actually I wanted to tell the story whether anything reminded me or not. <laughs> it was about a fellow that was driving down a country road, and all of a sudden I looked out, and there beside him was a chicken. He was doing about 45, and the chicken was running alongside. So he stepped on the gas, he got it up to about 60, and the chicken caught up with him and was right beside him again, and then he thought, as he was looking at him, that the chicken had three legs. But before he could really make up his mind for sure, the chicken took off out in front of him at 60 miles an hour, turned down a lane into a barnyard. Well, he made a quick turn and went down into the barnyard, too, and there was a farmer standing there. And he asked him, he said, did, did, did a chicken come past you? And he said, yeah. Well, he said, am I crazy, or did the chicken have three legs? And he says, yep, it's mine. He says, I breed three-legged chickens. <laughs> and the fellow said, for heaven's sake, why? Well, he says, I like the drumstick. Ma likes the drumstick. And now the kid likes the drumstick, and we just got tired of fighting for him. <laughs> and the driver said, well, how does it taste? He says, I don't know. I've never been able to catch one. <laughs> well, seriously, since... As Henry VIII said to each one of his six wives... I won't keep you long. <laughs> I spoke of the difference between our two countries. I try to follow the humor of the Russian people. We don't hear much about the Russian people. We hear about the Russian leaders. But you can learn a lot because they do have a sense of humor and you can learn from the jokes they're telling. And one of the most recent jokes I found kind of, well, personally interesting. Maybe you might tell you something about their country. The joke they tell is that an American and a Russian were arguing about the differences between our two countries. And the American said, look, in my country, I can walk into the Noble Office, I can hit the desk with my fist and say, President Reagan, I don't like the way you're governing the United States. And the Russian said, I can do that. The American said, what? He says, I can walk into the Kremlin, into Brezhnev's office, I can pound Brezhnev's nest, desk, and I can say, Mr. President, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is governing the United States. <laughs> now, I know that a lot of you have been having some fun with my advancing years. You even tied my recent surgery to my age. Well, I gotta be honest with you. I had that same operation when I was young, and it felt so good I wanted to have it done again before I was too old. <laughs> but I am aware of my age. When I go in for a physical now, they no longer ask me how old I am. They just carbon date me. George, Barbara, all of you up here on the top shelf, together with me and all of you ladies and gentlemen, I am enormously touched. Yesterday is my birthday. 
75 years ago, I was born in Tampico, Illinois, a little flat above the bank building. He didn't have any other contact with the bank than that. Now, here I am, sort of living above the store again. kind of been touched upon here that speaking of old times you may have heard that tomorrow is my birthday now you know about that I prefer to think of it as the 36th anniversary of my 39th but I'll be just about due for a midlife crisis in fact I'm thinking about a career change drop this political business and see if I can't do something different like radio or the movies Maybe I'll give politics another three years. I always think age is relative. There was once a very famous baseball pitcher, uh, Satchel Paige, and no one quite knew how old Satchel was, but he still was throwing that ball. And uh, somebody asked him about that, and his wise answer was, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? That's how I came up with 39. <laughs> well, the late Jack Benny had something to do with that. He was 39 for more than 40 years. I can't close without one story about doctors that he will understand very well. Have you ever noticed how easy it is if you're introduced to someone at a party or a dinner or something and, they, and he's introduced as doctor? And then there's always those people that suddenly start saying, Doctor, I've been having... And, well, we had a fellow in show business, Moss Hart, the playwright, who was an inveterate along that line. And so one night at a cocktail party in Hollywood, he was introduced to a Dr. Jones. And almost immediately, he started talking about, I've been having this low back pain. And the fellow that introduced them said, Moss, Dr. Jones is a doctor of economics. <laughs> And that didn't stop Moss at all. He said, Doctor, I was buying some stock the other day. <laughs> no. Well, I don't want to go on too long. This is, after all, Las Vegas. And outside just a moment ago, I saw a fellow trading 10 passes to the Reagan talk for one ticket to Frankie Valley. <laughs> I'm mindful, too, that bringing things to a good conclusion is always a a tricky business. You were told that I was a sports announcer, WHO Des Moines. Well, back in those days, the great evangelist Amy Semple McPherson was making a tour of the country holding revival meetings, and one of them in Des Moines. Now, the station thought it would be a good idea, an enterprising public relations man, to interview Amy Semple McPherson. But why they picked a sports announcer to interview that noted evangelist, I'll never know. But there we stood in the studio, and I asked her several what I thought were appropriate questions, and then she answered graciously, but then went into a very fervent plea about the success of her meeting. And I sat down, until suddenly I heard her saying good night to our radio audience, and I looked up at the clock, and there were only four minutes to go. Well, I didn't know enough about Amy Semple McPherson that I could put on, that I could fill four minutes. So I got up, and in those days of radio and disc jockeys and so forth, I started thanking the noted evangelist Amy Semple McPherson and so forth, but I did like this, which means get a record ready. And the fellow out in the control room through the window reached out. There was always records around there for such contingencies and picked one up and put it on the table. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this broadcast by the noted evangelist Amy Semple McPherson with a brief interlude of transcribed music. I expected nothing less than the Ave Maria. The Mills Brothers started singing Minnie the Moocher's Wedding Day. She never did say goodbye. She just slammed the studio door as she, as she went out. Thank you very much, but I think George and I should be applauding you. I thought it'd be good to get together now that we've all rested from our summer vacations. 
although it's true summer vacations aren't always restful, you know that that leads to a story. There was a fellow that was on his way to a mountain resort, and a policeman stopped him and said, did you know that you're driving without taillights? And the driver hopped out of the car. He was so badly shaken that the officer took pity on him and said, well, now, wait a minute, calm down. It's not that serious an infraction. The fellow said, it may not mean much to you, but to me it means I've lost my trailer, a wife, and four kids. <laughs> I was in Las Vegas some years ago to address the annual Farm Bureau meeting. And on my way to the hall, a fellow recognized me and asked what I was doing in Las Vegas. And I told him I was there, what I was there for. And he said, what are a bunch of farmers doing in a place like Las Vegas? And I couldn't resist. I said, Buster, they're in a business that makes a Las Vegas crap table look like a guaranteed annual income. <laughs> You know, there's a story about a pig and a chicken. They got tired of farm life, decided to find jobs in town. They no sooner arrived in town when a chicken spotted a sign in the window of a restaurant. It said ham and eggs, a dollar and a quarter. The chicken suggested they go in and apply. And the pig said, wait a minute. For you, this job only requires a contribution. For me, it's a total commitment. You know, I can't resist. I'm accused, and certainly some elements accuse me of too much of telling anecdotes and so forth. But I think it would be appropriate before I say anything else that one of my favorite stories about government had to do with a, an employee who sat at a desk and papers came to his desk. He read them and determined where they were to go and initialed them and sent them on. And one day a classified document came there, but it came to him, so he read it initialed it and sent it on. 24 hours later, it came back to him with a note attached that said, you weren't supposed to see this. Erase your initials and initial the erasure. <laughs> but even Howard Baker's writing a book about me. It's called Three by Five, The Measure of a Presidency. <laughs> Mike, Mike Devers, in his book, said that I had a short attention span. Well, I was going to reply to that, but oh, what the hell, let's move on to something else. <laughs> George Bush is doing well. George has been a wonderful vice president, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> I put him in charge of anti-terrorism, and the McLaughlin group is still on the air. <laughs> but with so much focus on the presidential election, I've been feeling a little lonely these days. I'm so desperate for attention, I almost considered holding a news conference. <laughs> I've even had time to watch the Oscars. I was a little disappointed in that movie, The Last Emperor. I thought it was going to be about Don Regan. <laughs> One example is a story they tell. You know, you have to wait 10 years there for delivery after you order an automobile. And so a fella had finally gotten the money together and was going to buy an automobile. Only about one out of seven families have them in that country. And he went through all the paperwork and everything and finally signed the last paper, laid down his money, and then the man behind the counter said, come back in 10 years and get your automobile. And the man said, morning or afternoon? <laughs> And the, wait, wait. The fellow behind the counter says, well, what difference does it make 10 years from now? And he said, well, a plumber's coming in the morning.
I know that some of you are no beginners when it comes to writing headlines. Reminds me a little bit of a cub reporter. You knew that something would remind me of a story. <laughs> cub reporter whose first solo assignment was interviewing a fellow who was just going to have a birthday that made him the oldest person in town. And he got to the address. It was an older building out in the outskirts of the city. And elderly gentleman ushered him in. He sat down and the reporter determined he was the man. And he, he said uh, he was there for the interview and he led right to the matter about how old are you. And the man said, 96. He said, to what do you attribute your longevity? And the fellow said, I don't smoke, drink, or run around with wild women. And at that moment, there was a crash from upstairs. And the reporter looked up and he said, what was that? And the old boy said, oh, that's dad. He's drunk again. <laughs> you know, there was a time that being a Republican in this area of the country felt a little bit like being Gary Cooper in High Noon. Outnumbered in a big way. I remember the story of the fellow here a while ago who was running for Congress as a Republican. He stopped by a farm to do some campaigning, and when the farmer heard he was a Republican, his jaw dropped and he said, Wait right here. He said, I, While I get Ma, she's never seen a Republican before. <laughs> so he got Ma, and the candidate looked around for a podium to give his speech from. The only thing he could find was pile of that stuff that Bess Truman took 35 years trying to get Harry to call fertilizer. <laughs> so he got up on the mound, and when they came back, he gave his speech. End of it, the farmer says, that's the first time I've ever heard a Republican speech. Candidate said, that's the first time I've ever given a Republican speech from a Democratic platform. <laughs> can be best described in a story I like. Three fellows that went out of the building to get in their car and found they'd locked the keys in. They were locked out. And one of them said, get a wire coat or ha coat hanger and we can straighten it out and I can get the... And the other one says, you can't do that. They'd somebody think we're stealing the car. And the third one said, well, we better do something pretty quick because it's raining, starting to rain and the top's down. <laughs> <laughs> this... This convention brings back so many memories to a fellow like me. I can still remember my first Republican convention, Abraham Lincoln giving a speech that <laughs> sent tingles down my spine. No, I have to confess I wasn't actually there. The truth is, way back then, I belonged to the other party. Seems that 25 of San Francisco's Top bootleggers. This is a little story to illustrate what I've just said about uh, candor. Uh, they were arrested back there in those days of the Volstead Act. And as they were being arraigned, the judge asked the usual question, of course, of, about their occupation. And the first 24 were all engaged in the same professional activity. Each claimed he was a realtor. Uh, and then he got to the last one, the 25th. and says, and what are you? He asked the last prisoner, and the, the fellow says, Your Honor, I'm a bootlegger. And the judge was surprised, but he laughed, and he said, Well, how's business? He said, It'd be a lot better if there weren't so many realtors around. <laughs> <laughs> President Alfonsi and I have much in common. We both have gone through many campaigns and asked for votes from many different kinds of people. Down in Texas during the 1976 primary, they had me out knocking on doors. And I remember one kind of rural area. I'd been governor of California, but I wasn't all that well known in Texas. And I knocked on the door and an old fellow in his undershirt and jeans came to the door and I told him I was running for president. and. Having been in the occupation I'd been in for a number of years, I was kind of surprised when he asked me what I'd done for a living. <laughs> and I told him I'd been an actor. And then he asked me what my name was. And I thought, well, maybe if I give him a hint, 
So I said, well, my initials were RR. And with that, a face lit up, and he turned, and he ran back into the house, and he was yelling, Ma, Ma, come on out here quick. Roy Rogers is outside. <laughs> so, of course, asking for help suggests a certain degree of trust, which reminds me of a story. It has to do with a fellow that fell off a cliff and he grabbed a limb on the way down and there he hung, dangling above the rocky canyon and he looked up and, and uh, <clears throat> didn't see anyone and he finally shouted out, oh Lord, if you're up there, tell me what to do. And a moment later, a voice came booming down from the heavens that said, if you have faith, let go. Well, he took another look down at those rocks 200 feet below and looked up again and says, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> Former Democrat myself, I know how difficult it is. We're proud to have you all with us. I have to tell you that I had started working for the party before I got around to joining it. And one night, 1962 state campaign in California, I was speaking at a fundraiser, and a woman stood up in the middle of the audience and asked me if I'd re-registered. And I said, no, but I, I'm going to. She said, I'm a registrar. She walked right down the middle aisle, <laughs> put the paper up, and I signed up, and then said, now, where was I? <laughs> Could I just say something here about this? I'm half Irish, too. Uh, the other part is English and Scotch. But I just, I just can't help but telling you and you can take this with you for, as I'm going to take this with me. At the, I was the, visiting Ireland and the, my father's ancestors' background and community and so forth, and then found myself on Cashel Rock where St. Patrick erected the first cross. And the young Irish guide was taking us through the old ancient cemetery. And we came to one tombstone. And he proudly pointed out, and the tombstone was inscribed. Remember me as you pass by, for as you are, so once was I. But as I am, you too will be, so be content to follow me. And this had proven too much for some Irish who had, who had scratched on the stone underneath. To follow you, I am content. I wish I knew which way you went. <laughs> you know, so much of, of what we're trying to do, and so much of this, depended on real communications. And I can't resist. I've told this story before, and if some of you have heard it before, it illustrates communications. You'll have to forgive me, but life not only begins, or lumbago, I should say, not only begins at 40, but so does the tendency to tell the same story over and over again. <laughs> but I've always thought of the importance of communication and how much a part it plays in what you and I, what all of us are trying to do. And one day, a former place kicker with the Los Angeles Rams, who later became a sports announcer, Danny Villanueva, told me about communications. He said he'd been having dinner over at the home of a young ball player with the Dodgers. The young wife was bustling about getting the dinner ready. They were talking sports, and the baby started to cry. And over her shoulder, his busy wife said to the ball player, change the baby. And he was a young fellow, and he was embarrassed in front of Danny, and he said, what do you mean, change the baby? I'm a ball player. That's not my line of work. And she turned around, put her hands on her hips, and she communicated. <laughs> she said, look, Buster, you lay the diaper out like a diamond. You put second base on home plate. You put the baby's bottom on the pitcher's mound. You hook up first and third, slide home underneath. And if it starts to rain, the game ain't called. You start all over. <laughs> Something else I, I have to interject here, although this is not an occasion for humor. But I've had a kind of a hobby lately of collecting, by way of dissidence, stories that are told behind some of those iron curtains and those iron walls by the people themselves showing their own cynicism about the system under which they're forced to live. And one recently that I heard had to do with three dogs that were having a conversation, an American dog, a Polish dog, and a, and a Russian dog. 
And the American dog was telling him about how well he barks, and then in our country, the, his master gives him some meat. And the Polish dog said, what's meat? <laughs> and the, German, or the, the Russian dog says, what's bark? <laughs> Reminds me of a story. In case you were wondering, this is my way of sliding into a story. <laughs> Many of you here work on east-west trade issues, and I like to collect stories that I can verify that the Russian people tell among themselves, so I'm going to tell you this one. It's about General Secretary Gorbachev. Seems that as part of the campaign to straighten things out there in his country, he had issued an order that everyone caught speeding or seen speeding should get a ticket, no matter how important they might be. Well, one morning he was out at his country home and realized that he was running late for a meeting that he had in the Kremlin, and he got into the, went out to get in his car and told the driver to get in the back seat that he'd drive. And he did, and down the street he went, and they passed two motorcycle policemen, and the one of them took off after him. And a little while later he came back and joined his companion, the other motorcycle officer, and the fellow said, did you give him a ticket? And he said, no. Well, he said, why not? Well, he said, no, no, he was, this was someone too important. Well, he said, we were told to give it no matter who it was that they were to get a ticket. No, he says, not, not that. Well, he said, who was it? Well, he said, I, I don't know. I couldn't recognize him there, but his driver is Gorbachev. <laughs> I have to tell you right here, I have been collecting stories that I can absolutely establish are told by the people behind the Iron Curtain in the Communist bloc. And they're stories that reveal their kind of cynicism about the system under which they live. And one of the more recent ones that I heard was about the man walking along the street at night, Moscow, Soviet soldier called to him to halt. He started to run the show, soldier shot him. And another man said, why did you do that? Well, he said, curfew. Well, he said, it isn't curfew yet. He said, I know, he's a friend of mine. I know where he lives. He couldn't have made it. <laughs> Slander number three. That does, I shouldn't, I know, but that does trigger another one of those stories I've picked up from over there. They came to General Secretary Gorbachev, and they told him there was a woman in the Kremlin, and she wouldn't leave unless she could see him. So he said, well, bring her in, and they brought her in. And he said, old mother, what is it? What? She said, I have a question. He said, all right. She said, was communism invented by a politician or a scientist? Well, he said, a, a politician. She said, that explains it. A scientist would have tried it on mice first. <laughs> You know, there's a story about a young fellow from the city who hired out to work on a farm during the harvest season. And the first morning, everyone was up well before dawn. The new hired hand and the farmer made their way in the dark out to the oat field, neither one of them saying a word. And finally, the city fellow asked, what kind of oats were they going to cut, wild oats or tame oats? And the farmer, a little surprised, said, well, tame oats, of course. Why do you ask? Well, he said, I was just wondering why we're sneaking up on him in the dark. <laughs> There's a story, and I understand it's true. It's about a newspaper photographer out in Los Angeles. Kind of reminds me of Howard. He was called in by his editor and told of a fire that was raging in Palos Verdes. That's a hilly area in the southern part of Los Angeles County. And the photographer's assignment was to rush down to a small local airport, board a waiting plane, go out and get some pictures of the fire and be back in time for the afternoon edition. Well, he raced down the freeway, broke all the traffic laws, got to the airport, drove his car to the end of the runway, and sure enough, there was a plane revving up its engines, ready to go. He jumped in the plane shouting, let's go, and they were off. At about 5,000 feet, he began getting his camera out of the bag, told the fellow flying the plane to get him over the fire so he could get his pictures and get back to the paper. And from the other side of the cockpit, there was a deafening silence. 
And then he heard those words he will always remember. Aren't you the instructor? <laughs> you know, when I think of the welfare system, it reminds me of a story, and I know some here have heard me tell this before, and maybe everybody knows it, but pretend that you haven't heard it because I like to tell that story. <laughs> it's a story about the parent with the two children and two sons, and one of them was a died in a wool pessimist and the other one was an incurable optimist and they thought they were both so unrealistic that they talked to a psychiatrist about it and he said he thought he could solve the problem and they said well what well he said let's get the most magnificent set of toys any boy ever had and we'll put him in a room we'll take the pessimist there and then we'll turn him loose and when he sees those toys and knows they're all for him he'll get over being a pessimist and they said what are you going to do about the optimist well he said I have a friend who's got a racing stable and he said, we can get quite a quantity of what they clean out of the stable. And we'll put that in another room. And when the optimist has seen his brother get those toys, and then he gets that, he'll get over being an optimist. <laughs> well, they did it. And finally, after a period, they then went in and followed in where the boy was with the toys. And he was sitting there crying. And they said, what, what are you crying about? He said, well, I know somebody's going to come and take these away from me. <laughs> And they went down to the room with the optimist, and he was on that top of that pile of stuff, and he was throwing it over his shoulder as fast as he could. And they said, what are you doing? He says, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> Reagan's humor and self-effacing style was perhaps one of the most key elements to his ability to communicate. After all, nobody remembers a professor's lecture after the exam for that class, but nearly everyone recalls a comedy routine, and that's part of what earned Reagan the nickname The Great Communicator. Now we'll wrap this up with the best excerpts from Reagan's various debates with his challengers. These excerpts demonstrate why he was able to defeat challengers easily, bring together both sides of the aisle in a spirit of bipartisanship, an insight into what his common sense policies for America meant, and how much he loved our nation and her people. Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> we were succeeding, and that was why the terrorist acts began. There are forces there, and that includes Syria in my mind, who don't want us to succeed. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I'm not going to continue trying to respond to these re repetitions of the falsehoods that have already been stated here, but with regard to whether Mr. Mondale would be strong as he said he would be, I know that he has a commercial out where he is appearing on the deck of the Nimitz and watching the F-14s take off, and that's an image of strength, except that if he had had his way when the Nimitz was being planned, he would have been deep in the water out there because there wouldn't have been any Nimitz to stand on. He was against it. <laughs> he was against the F-14 fighter. He was against the M-1 tank. He was against the B-1 bomber. He wanted to cut the salary of the, all of the military. He wanted to bring home half of the American forces in Europe. And he has a record of weakness with regard to our national defense that is second to none. Indeed, he was on that side virtually throughout all his years in the Senate, and he opposed even the President Carter when, toward the end of his term, President Carter wanted to increase the defense budget. I tell you that I believe with all my heart that our first priority must be world peace, and that 
use of force is always and only a last resort when everything else has failed. That was we had adequate warning that there was a threat to our embassy and we could have done what other embassies did, either strengthen our security there or remove our personnel before the kidnap and the takeover took place. I am eternally optimistic and I happen to believe that we've made great progress from the days when I was young and when this country didn't even know it had a racial problem. I know those things can grow out of despair in an inner city, um, when there's hopelessness at, at home, lack of work and so forth. But I believe that all of us together, and I believe the presidency is what Teddy Roosevelt said it was, it's a bully pulpit. And I think that something can be done from there because the goal for all of us should be that one day things will be done neither because of nor in spite of any of the differences between us ethnic differences or racial differences, whatever they may be, that we will have total equal opportunity for all people. And I would do everything I could in my power to bring that about. A president should never say never, but I'm going to violate that rule and say never. I will never stand for a reduction of the social security benefits to the people that are now getting them. Leadership. First of all, I think you must have some principles you believe in. In mine, I happen to believe in the people and believe that the people are supposed to be dominant in our society. That they, not government, are to have control of their own affairs to the greatest extent possible with an orderly society. Now having that, I think also that in leadership, well, I've believed that you find people, positions such as I'm in, who have the talent and ability to do the things that are needed in the various departments of government. I don't believe that a leader should be spending his time in the Oval Office deciding who's going to play tennis on the White House court. And you let those people go with the guidelines of overall policy, and not looking over their shoulder and nitpicking the manner in which they go at the job. You are ultimately responsible, however, for that job. But I also believe something else about that. I believe that, and when I became governor of California, I started this and I continue it in this office, that any issue that comes before me, I have instructed cabinet members and staff, they are not to bring up any of the political ramifications that might surround the issue. I don't want to hear them. I want to hear only arguments as to whether it is good or bad for the people. Is it morally right? And on that basis, and that basis alone, we make a decision on every issue. The environment, yes, I feel as strongly as anyone about the preservation of the environment. When we took office, we found that the national parks were so dirty and contained so many hazards, lack of safety features, that we stopped buying additional parkland until we had rectified this with a, what was to be a five-year program, but it's just about finished already, a billion dollars, and now we're going back to budgeting for additional lands for our parks. But I'm running on the record of what we have asked for. We'll continue to try and get things that we didn't get in the program that has already brought the rate of spending of government down from 17% to 6.1%. A, pro, a program of returning authority and autonomy to the uh, local and uh, state governments that has been unjustly seized with the federal government, and you might find those words in a democratic platform of some years ago. I know because I was a Democrat at that time, and I left the party eventually because I could no longer follow the turn in the Democratic leadership that took us down an entirely different path, a path of centralizing authority in the federal government, lacking trust in the American people, now, I don't think that to try and say that we were taxing the rich and not the other way around, uh, it just doesn't work out that way. You know, the president is supposed to be replying to me, but sometimes I have a hard time in connecting what he's saying with what I have said or what my positions are. I sometimes think it's like the witch doctor that gets mad when a good doctor comes along with a cure that'll work. The, my point I have made already, Mr. President, with regard to negotiating, it does not call for nuclear superiority on the part of the United States. 
It is calls for a mutual reduction of these weapons, as I say, to the point that neither of us can represent a threat uh, to the other. And to suggest that the SALT II Treaty that your negotiators negotiated was just a continuation and based on all of the preceding efforts by two previous presidents is just not true. It was a new negotiation because, as I say, President Ford was within about 10 percent of having a solution that could be acceptable. And I think our allies would be very happy to go along with a fair and verifiable SALT agreement. You know, I wasn't going to say this at all, but I can't help it. There you go again. <laughs> I don't have a plan to tax or increase taxes. I'm not going to increase taxes. I can understand why you are, Mr. Mondale, because as a senator, you voted 16 times to increase taxes. Now, I believe that our problem has not been that anybody in our country is undertaxed. It's that government is overfed. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.